Second Peter, we'll be in Second Peter chapter 1 together this morning. Second Peter chapter 1. Have you ever had something in abundance? Maybe overabundance? Sometimes when we think of it that way, it has the negative connotation. <clears throat> you ever decide to plant more than one zucchini plant? And then you're leaving them on your neighbor's doorsteps? Because you had zucchini in abundance. We did that this past year. My wife was like, well, let's plant two in case one doesn't make it. They're a weed. They always make it. And we were watering them. And if you water a zucchini plant, it's proportional to how much water you give it. You know that. I had a drip irrigation, and one was like a gallon per minute, and one was two gallons per minute. And it was literally double the size, and small baby-sized zucchini came out of that plant. I'll tell you what. Or uh, I think about where we previously lived. There was an overabundance, especially during this time of year, of something that some of you hate with a passion, and that's pollen, because some of you are allergic. So an overabundance or an abundance of pollen is not a good thing. In Greenville, South Carolina, there is a pollen season. There's a few seasons over there. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful. Idaho actually has the four correct seasons. We have spring, summer, winter, and, and fall, autumn. We have all four of those that we can experience. In Greenville, South Carolina, you have a few different seasons. You have pollen season, you have humidity season, you have road construction season. So those are the three that you have there because those are overabundance as well. And so you can have an abundance of pollen. You could actually ride on your vehicles, ride on any surface outside because it just coats it in green. Those are negative examples. You don't really want to have an overabundance in that. But what about life? Do you want to have an abundant life? When we think of it in those terms, there, there maybe are some things that we say, yeah, I do want to have an abundance of. What about this? Do you want to have an abundance of good, healthy relationships? Yeah. Friends, family, say, yeah, I want to be abundant of that. I, or what about in your health? Do you want to have abundant health? You know, something that is not preventing or holding you back. Some of you feel that. Some of you feel that online right now. But you want abundance in life. And so, in this passage that we look at today, we're actually going to look at two key ideas, two terms here. We're going to look at the abundant life, and we're going to look at the established life. Do you also want to be established? Some of you very much want to be established in Idaho, right? I'm loving it here. You moved from out of state, and you're, you're happy to be here, right? You want to be... But... Really, we're talking about something much more than just the physical location where you live. We're talking what your life rests upon. So I'm not coming to you here today as some sort of prosperity gospel preacher saying, do you want your best life now? <clears throat> That's the name of a book by a popular preacher. Well, he calls himself a preacher. So I'm not offering your best life now, because if this is as good as it gets, I'm sorry. <laughs> There are some major issues, some major problems. But what I do want to offer you is what Christ and the Word offers, and that is an abundant life. Remember what Christ said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. 
And he's also referred to himself and then to the writer of this book, Peter, as the rock. What's important about a rock? A rock is something that is stable, that is foundational, right? Something that you want to build your house on. That's why you see these houses next door, they're going in as, as fast as can be, and after they clear the dirt and pack it, what, what, what are the forms they're putting in? They're putting in concrete, right? They're putting in rock. That's the first step to a good house. So you've got to have that solid foundation. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking today at verses 10 through 15, we're going to see the abundant and established life, what that looks like. And what that entails, as Peter calls to our minds the life that we should be living. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, would you read with me? We'll read verses 10 through 15, 2 Peter chapter 1, reading now. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So here in Second Peter 1, we've already looked at Simon Peter, an apostle, a servant, and he's written these, this book as his final words, remember? And he's given us many things to think about, but the main idea is grow in grace. And that's how he finishes chapter 3. It's his desire for believers, his final words, his last words, really, to us here in Second Peter are, as a believer, grow in grace. And we saw that it was based on a like precious faith. We have the same standing the same faith even as the Apostle Peter, same salvation, same standing before God. It's not like one person is more saved than another. We all have access to God. And therefore, because we have that same salvation through faith, he said, then you're supposed to grow in it. And he gives, then add to your faith, and he gives the whole list that we looked at last week of these, really a portrait of Christ-likeness, of what Christ looks like in his attributes. And he goes through the list of, you know, add to your faith, and then things like temperance, godliness, patience, brotherly kindness, ending with charity. And he said all of that is rooted and based in the fact that you have God's divine power as a believer in you, he has saved you, and it's based on his promises. So that's what you're resting in. And so it's based on all of that that we come to verse 10. And it's very important that verse 10 is where verse 10 is, that it's not before everything we've already covered, and it's not after. It's, it's, it's right where it is, because he's saying, based on everything we've gone through so far, that you have an equal standing, access to God, 
you can, you can grow in Christ-likeness. It's based on God's sure promises. He then again, in verse 10, says, Wherefore the rather, because of these things, brethren, he's calling to believers, give diligence. He actually bookends our passage with this idea of diligence. In verse 10, he says, give diligence. And in verse 15, he says, moreover, I will endeavor, it's the same word, same idea, I will give diligence that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things in remembrance. Now, this word diligence, we've actually already looked at last week because it was in the previous section in verse 5 where he says, and besides all this, give all diligence. And we talked about if you're going to have a pursuit in life, if you're going to go after something in life, your desire, your pursuit should be to look like Christ. That should be your goal. And so then he comes to verse 10 and says, give diligence, pursuit after this, to make your calling and election sure. And what is he saying here? When you read that, it almost sounds like you might be able to lose your salvation. Because we've already talked about your faith and all of that, and he said, but make sure. But that's not the, the tone that he's coming through at all. He's saying to believers, I actually want you to be resting solidly in the fact of your salvation. While at the same time, as the Bible does, giving the warning to any who make false professions, who may do lip service and not actually be believers, to warn and say, you got to make sure that you're in the family of faith. So he says, give diligence. This is something that you should be certain and know. In other words, this should be a settled deal in your life as a believer that you know where your salvation status is before Almighty God. And really, then the call is opened up to all people. You should know, you can know, if your standing before God is on the right one. Is it, is it based on your sins being forgiven and Christ being your Savior, or are you still lost? So he comes and says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And these two words are used throughout the Bible. This idea of calling is what Christ does to all. He bids, he invites, said, whosoever will may come. He invites those to believe. And then he also gives this idea of election or God choosing, that God chooses. And when we get to this word election, there can be a lot of debate, right? A lot of argument. But here's what I want to do. I want to simply state what the scriptures state and not go one way or the other. In other words, we want to be balanced in this. What does the scripture say? Well, let's go to Ephesians 4, or the book of Ephesians. It also gives some insight on this and uses both of these terms of calling and election again. If you back up to Ephesians And here Paul is admonishing us in Ephesians 4 where he says, I therefore, in verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling." 
So what is he doing? He's saying, you as believers, you've been called, you've responded to that, and now live like it. That's the idea. And then notice he gives a short list in verse 2 and 3 of, here's how you live this out. It's just kind of like Peter did in the earlier verses. Here's what Christ-likeness looks like. And then you back up to Ephesians chapter 1, where he uses this other term. Ephesians 1, it's in verse 4. We'll start at the beginning here. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints are which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us, the same idea, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So the question then comes is why does God choose? Why does God choose? Why does God elect? And that, that can be a hot topic, right, to debate. And we're not here to debate it. We're just simply saying God does. And we're going to rest in God's almighty character in that. But notice with things like election, it's always given to believers. It's not to unbelievers. It's to the body. And so it's not something where you can say, well, I'm elect and they're not, so I'm not going to worry about it. That's not what God calls us to at all. He still says, whosoever will may come. And here's the tension. We sometimes wonder, how does God's will and man's will interact? If God is sovereign and holy and everything's in his control, but yet man has a free will, what do some people do? They'll throw away one or diminish the one to the other or have an uneven balance. But God calls, and the Bible teaches, both. And so when it comes to the lost, the call is there. Whosoever will may come. But then it comes to the believer. It's really election. The choosing is supposed to be an assurance, a comfort from God that you are mine. I have chosen you. Do you have any relationships where it's, it's comforting to you that, yeah, I've chosen someone and they've chosen me? Marriage is a small picture of that. It doesn't illustrate everything perfectly, but it wasn't like I went to Samantha and said, I chose you, and then she had nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> no, we, we actually chose each other. And sometimes that takes time with people because you don't know each other well, right? You have to get to know each other. But yet, that choosing of one another, especially on our wedding day, we said, I choose you, we choose each other. What does that create? That creates a bond and a security and a comfort in that relationship. And that's what God is, is giving here. And he said, make your calling an election sure. What does it mean to be sure about something? It means to be steadfast, to be certain. It means to be enduring. So Peter he is saying here, the issue of your salvation is one that should be settled, that you should know, that you can know, that you can rest assured on, because all of your Christian life and experiences flows out of that. So wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, he goes on to say in verse 10, ye shall never fall. If you do what things? And it's all that he's been talking about so far. If you're resting by faith in the promises of God, if you have that, that standing, if you're growing really in Christ's likeness, if you do these things, you shall never fall. What does it mean you shall never fall? Well, there could be two ideas here. One of just stumbling or one of falling away 
or what we'd call apostasy. And so it brings up the question, can you lose your salvation? Can someone fall away? And that's a big question for some. But what does the Bible teach on this? The Bible is very clear. We're going to look at John 6 and John chapter 10, that God is the one who saves and God is the one who keeps. And if God is the one who saves and God is the one who who keeps, it's not something that you can lose. And so, some would have an argument against that that we'll get to a bit. But so, we can trust fully in what God has to say. Let's look at John 6 first. I love John chapter 6. It's one of my favorite passages of Christ. It's talking about the feeding of the 5,000. He takes a few loaves, few fish, and is able to feed thousands of people miraculously. He's showing his power over creation. He's showing his power over the physical world. And then the, the people, he has this long conversation with the religious leaders And saying in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, I was doing miraculous things, and all you care about is temporal things. So that's why he goes on to say, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Notice that. Christ himself is saying, I can give you everlasting life. I can give it to you. And then look in verse 39. And this is the Father's will which he has sent me, all that all of which he hath given me, I should lose how many? Nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may, or I should even say, will have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What is Christ's very words? Everyone that is sin of me, everyone that seeth the Son, everyone that believeth on him will have everlasting life. That promise is given. That if you believe, you'll have everlasting life and that Christ will raise you up. What about John chapter 10? I love this passage as well. Because instead of the bread of life, he gives a different illustration. He gives... The illustration of the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 26. John 10, 26, he says, But ye believe not, notice it's belief here, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Who saves? Who keeps? It's Christ. He's the one that gives everlasting life. He's the one that holds. Then there's some objections to that, though, right? What about those that profess, they profess to be saved, but then later they fall away? Well, notice some very key passages of what 1 John 2.19 says. 1 John 2.19. It 
It's like the Bible anticipated our question and actually answers them when it comes to really important stuff like this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He said, they went out, and he's talking about many antichrists or many false teachers, many people that are against Christ. They went out where? From us. In other words, they were with us. They might have even looked like us. They might have even been with us. But, verse 19, they were not of us. For if they, would ha- if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Or back in Second Peter, just a page back, in chapter 2, he gets into the false teachers, and we'll get into this in the coming weeks in more detail. Second Peter 2, verse 1, where he says, but there were false prophets, where? Also among the people. They were right in the midst. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. What is he saying? They were in the midst. They might have looked like you, but they were never of you. They were never actually saved. So someone can make a false profession, but if the falling away shows who they truly were all along. Or Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 16 These are just a few of the passages we could look at. Titus 1, verse 16. Where someone can profess to know God, they profess they know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. In other words, someone may say something, but their their whole life totally is against what God says. So, then that comes up the question, well, I'm, I'm saved, but I still struggle with this thing called sin. And so I still stumble. I still might offend or mess up. Does that mean I lose my salvation? Well, I'll give you this illustration that's helpful for me. I have two sons, right? And my oldest son, Elias, shares two names with me. He shares a middle name and a last name. His name is Elias Abraham Cleaver. And so Elias, as my son, is a cleaver. He's an Abraham Cleaver. He he reflects and and shows, okay, yeah, he's my son. Not only that, Elias looks like me in a lot of ways. Sometimes he even acts like me. Sometimes he says things that are a lot like something I would say. And in all of those things, he is my son, right? He is a cleaver. And so I can go to Elias and I say, and maybe you've said things like this to your kids at times, cleavers do not do, and you can fill in the blank, like our family doesn't do certain things. For the sake of this illustration, I'm going to say cleavers do not throw rocks at windows. Now let me ask you a question. For almost six-year-old boy, is throwing rocks at windows ever a tempting thing to do? Absolutely. I'm still tempted to throw rocks at windows my wife will tell you some of those you know ornate glass lamps or you walk through hobby lobby they even put the things on glass shelves man a baseball bat in that store would be a dream right no no i'm no no so cleavers marilyn's giving me the dirty eye right now i know she 
She might have had customers do this, I don't know. So cleavers do not throw rocks at glass. And I tell Elias this, you're a cleaver, cleavers don't throw rocks at glass. And then, after church today, you see Elias, and he's out back with other unnamed young boys. And they're in the rock pile, and they're taking rocks, and they're throwing them against the church building. And some of them are hitting the glass. Now, what has Elias just done? Well, he's disobeyed, right? He's dishonored the family name. And then what do I do? Well, I hear about this, and I see him doing it, and one of the rocks he has thrown has actually hit the glass. And at that very moment, I go to him and say, like any loving parent would, Elias, you're no longer my son. (laughs) Right? Because cleavers don't throw rocks at glass, and you just threw a rock at glass, therefore, you're no longer my son. You all laugh, thank you, because that's the appropriate response. You say, no, we would never do that, right? We would never say, just because he threw a rock, that he's no longer a cleaver. He still has the last name. He's still my son. Well, often in our Christian life, we do the same thing. We take a a mathematical equation that God said is not an appropriate proof. We say, I'm a believer, Believers aren't supposed to sin. I sinned, therefore, what? I'm not a believer, right? And that's the the wrong logic that we use. And God is saying, no, if I have saved you, you are my child. Then it begs the question, well, what do we do with sin? Well, what do I do with Elias? I don't go to him and say, you're no longer my son. What do I do? I go to him and say, something's been broken. The window's been broken, but also our fellowship has been broken. And we need to mend that fellowship, right? So there has to be uh, repentance on his part. I mean, acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's forgiveness on my part. There's a restoration. And then there's a working to make things right, whether that's paying for the window or whatever. And we do that in human relationships and we understand that. And, and God is saying the same thing here, that, that you're my child and there, there's characteristics that are in your life, but maybe they're not all there. They're still growing. And that's why Peter's whole point is here is you're supposed to grow in grace. There's supposed to be a looking more and more like Christ, even if there's messing up. And so if you do these things, you shall never fall. He's talking about Those that are true believers, those that are Christians, just like Elias is a cleaver, they're going to continue, though, in what the Father wants, right? They're going to come back. They're going to make things right. They're going to grow in that relationship. So there's no falling away as you grow in your Christ-likeness. In other words, it's really a pursuit idea. You want the abundant life. You're pursuing the things of Christ, not pursuing the things of yourself. Your purpose is for Christ-likeness. Not for throwing rocks with your friends, right? It's going after what Christ wants. And so then there's the warning of, as we saw already in chapter 2, don't follow the false teachers. You're not going to follow after them because they're going to lead you astray. Jude talks about that. Jude chapter 1, where he says in verse 3 and 4, Beloved, 
when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, in other words, we have the salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort that you should earnestly contend for the faith. What does it sound like? That sounds like diligence, just like Peter is admonishing us, which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? Because there's certain men crept in unawares who were before old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, beware of that. And so we'll get to, in verse 11, that balance of what does grace look like in the believer's life. But, but Peter's promise, or his certainty here, is he wants you to be sure of your salvation. So let me ask you a question. Are you sure? Some of you, you may not be sure, and the, really the call, the invitation is today is you can be sure. Some of you, you may still struggle with that. You said, I, I, I know I, I'm, I'm saved, but it, God wants you to be sure, steadfast, certain. And what is he saying? Give diligence to these things, not your own <laughs> unsure desires, but instead to God's unfailing promises. Continue in those. And as he goes on in verse 11, for so, or in this way, everything that he's worked up to so far, especially verses 5 through 10, in this way, as you're, you're pursuing after Christ, really having an abundant pursuit of him, in this way an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? As you pursue him, what's going to be provided or opened is an abundant life. Not just now, but in the future. He's saying, in this way, an entrance shall be ministered. He's not saying that you're working for your salvation. That's not what he's saying here again. He's saying, as you live a growing in grace, a Christ-like filled life, you will be greatly welcomed into this everlasting kingdom. The idea here is there a great reward. There's richly provided here something for us. And there's two things it could be talking about. It could be talking about eternal life, but I think it's both eternal life in and of itself, that's provided as you're pursuing Christ, but it's also great reward. Let's look at both of those ideas, both eternal life and great reward. This idea of eternal life, we already know, comes from Christ. If you turn back to John 6, I know we were already there, but it talks and speaks much of this. How Christ provides it, and how eternal life is not something that you gain when you die, but it's actually you gain at salvation and is fulfilled when we see Christ. In other words, if you're a believer, you have eternal life now. John chapter 6, go to verse 35. Christ speaking here again. John six thirty-five, where he says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He's giving that promise. If you come to me, you will be satisfied, even now. Go to verse 47. Verily, verily, or for certain, for certain, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath, 
present, everlasting life, if you believe you have it. What about verse 54? He's giving the illustration here to the Jews, and he says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. In other words, you partake of me, you believe in me, you have me, you have life. And then verse 68, Simon Peter himself, the one who wrote the passage we're looking at, answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Eternal life is found in Christ, but in Christ is also found great reward for following him. And that's the promise given throughout Scripture as well. Look at Christ's words himself. Let's back up to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. Sorry, Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We're talking about the entrance into the kingdom. Notice what Christ said, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, are pursuing after Christ's likeness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There's great reward for following Christ, even if there's great cost in this life. Turn over to Matthew 19, please. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 27. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Then answered who? Peter. He knew this well. Then answered Peter, Matthew 19, 27, and said unto him, that's Christ, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? In other words, what do we get out of following Christ? Kind of blunt, right? Would you ask Jesus that? But he answered, verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me and the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold. What is a hundredfold? That's a good return on investment, isn't it? And shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We could keep on going. There, there are many verses that show that there is great reward for following Christ. It's part of the abundant life that he offers, even if it doesn't always feel like it now. So what's the point? As we're growing in grace, as we're growing in Christ-likeness, as we're, we're going down this, this path of life, he's saying, you have everlasting life now. I want you to have abundant life. And heaven... Christ's kingdom, it only gets better. In other words, it's like you're, you're going down the path and what happens? 
the gate gets bigger and bigger as you come to heaven, is the idea. And so, in the application of this, the idea is, is this. As a believer, as someone who's called, as someone who has been saved by faith, your destiny is what? What is your destiny? Your destiny is Christ-likeness. Your destiny is heaven. Your destiny is eternal life in Christ's kingdom. So Peter is reminding us all of those things are true. That is your destiny. So his encouragement is, why not live like that now? In other words, why not pursue that now? Not that we're going to have heaven here on earth. It's only going to get better. But he's saying, if your destiny is to be like Christ, why not live like it now? If your destiny is you, ha- you have everlasting life and it's only going to be more abundant, why not live in that reality right now? If your destiny is you're part of Christ's kingdom, why not live like that right now? That he's my king. I'm going to live for him. And that's how he ends verse 11. Notice it's the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, this is our focus as a believer. It's our Lord and it's our Savior. What does it mean to be Lord? It means absolute ownership rights. If someone's a Lord over something, they have absolute ownership rights. What does it mean to be a Savior? It means he has delivered us to safety. He's rescued us. So there can be some debate in all of these things that people will have over, you know, once saved, always saved. Some of the flack or the pushback we as Baptists would get for that is, well, then you can just live however you want, right? And, and that's how some people say it. It's just punch my get out of hell card, my ticket, and I'm good to go. And so people are saying, you know, no, it can't be that way. But, but remember, on any of these, you can't swing the pendulum too far one way or the other. You can't have what some people would, they would call that cheap grace, cheap grace, which kind of is funny because God's grace is freely given, right? So how do you pay cheaply for something that's free? But the idea behind that is cheap grace is get my get out of hell card stamped and I'm good to go, right? That's not what Peter is saying here at all, right? And then some would swing the pendulum way the, the other way and go to some sort of extreme form of what they call lordship salvation that you know, you, you have to be saved and know everything and submitted all to Christ at salvation. Now, is Christ Lord even at salvation? Yes. Do you know everything that that lordship entails? No. That's why they call it growing in grace. Because think about it. You know, even the Philippian jailer, what did, what did Paul say to him? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those three names are important. Did the Philippian jailer know everything that Lord meant or that Jesus meant? or that Christ meant? Let me ask you this. Did you know everything that that entailed when you were saved? Did I, as a five-year-old? No. But what did I know? I know that Jesus offered everlasting life, and it was a simple belief and trust in him. And guess what? Christ saved me. But now that I'm saved, what do I want to do? Well, I want to follow my Lord. I want to follow my Savior. I want to follow Jesus Christ, because he is that to me. So the question is, not really cheap grace versus lordship, But it's really, God has freely saved you by grace, so grow in grace. Grow out what God is doing in your life. Because he deserves that. He's delivered you to safety, and he has absolute ownership rights of you. 
So you want an abundant life? Be sure of your salvation. Be steadfast in that. As Monty would say, steadfast and stable. And Christ gives you this abundant, everlasting life. How do you become established, though? How do you become firm? How do you know that you have a solid foundation? Well, that's what he goes on to say then in verses 12 through 15. And there's a theme here. If you didn't pick up on it when we read it, let's look briefly at the words that have to do with knowledge or remembering. Verse 12, I will put you always in remembrance, though ye know them. Be established in the truth. Verse verse 13, put you in remembrance. Verse 14, knowing he knows something. And then verse 15, he ends with remembrance. So again and again and again, he uses this idea of remembering. We've talked a little bit about this already, but what is Peter getting at? Do you know certain things about yourself? Do you ever forget anything about yourself? Do you know certain things about other people? Sometimes you have to be reminded, though. When it comes with our, to our relationship with Christ, Peter is saying, you want to be established then continually remind yourself about who Christ is what he's done and what he is doing in your life and that's why he says over and over and over again in these few verses I want you to remember he's not saying you don't know anything he's he says in verse 12 though ye know them you already know but you need to be reminded the idea here is that you're prompting yourself to remember. In other words, there's, there's key ways in your life where you're having the flag pop up or the sign pop up to remind you. You ever been driving down the interstate? You didn't set cruise. You're just kind of hitting the gas. You look down at your speedometer. It says 80. And then you have the thought, wait a minute. What did the last sign say? But thank you. Thankfully, there's a friendly state trooper there to remind. No, I, no, no. And he's going to remind you what the speed limit is, right? It had dropped to 70. You didn't see the sign. You didn't remember. He's like, I've driven this inter- piece of interstate hundreds of times. And I just, you know, I forgot to slow down right there. The idea here is you're putting signposts in your life of saying, remind, remember what Christ has done and who he is. All of these previous verses that we've already talked through, verses 1 through 11, he's saying, I don't want to be negligent to put you in remembrance of these specific things. And why is that? Look at the end of verse 12. Even though you know them, and look, and be established in the present truth. He's saying you're established, but I want you to continue. I want you there. I want you established in what is true about your heart, your life, about what Christ has done for you. And so, as long, I think it means, in other words, I think it's worth my time, I think it's worthwhile, as long as I'm in this tabernacle. What is he talking about? He's saying, as long as I'm in this body, another way we could put it, as long as I have life and breath, I'm going to keep reminding you, and I'm going to keep talking about, and I'm going to keep declaring Jesus. 
He actually verbalizes it or he writes it down. In other words, trying to make it more permanent and to keep it in front of us. To do what? And he uses the word in, or the phrase in verse 13 to stir up and has the idea to awake, to arouse, to go throughout. What does it take to awake or to arouse or to get you fired up about something? Something you're passionate about, right? Something you want others to know about. And this is Peter's driving desire here. He's like, I want you to know and be reminded about, to be awakened to all that Christ has done. So Peter is saying, my life is about this. My life is about stirring other people up and saying, let's talk about what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus is doing for us. So the question then comes, that's what Peter's life is about. Is that what your life is about? Is that what my life is about? Is it about actually stirring up people, other people, other believers, and saying, let's remind one another, let's stir up one another? So the writer of Hebrews would say, to love and good works. Let's remind each other that we need to be growing together. Other people did this in, in, in lives. If you go to 2 Timothy 1.5, you see how it's not just an apostle or an a pastor that's doing this. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul's writing to Timothy, but he says, When I call to remembrance, call to mind, this same idea here, the unfeigned faith which is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. So Paul's call, calling to mind, but how did Timothy come to know Christ? How was he reminded of that? It was the very people in his life, his mother and his grandmother, that was doing this in his life. So faith that is in you is something that we should remind one another about. I'm reminded of your faith, of your salvation testimony, what God has done in your life, and I'm rejoicing in that. And, and there's a motivation here, too, of my time is short. In other words, if I'm going to do anything with the time that God has given me in my life, this is what I want to do. I want to stir up others to know Jesus, to know Jesus Christ, to know what he's done. Because look at verse 14 back in 2 Peter 1. He's saying, no, I know this. I'm reminding myself of this, that shortly I must put off this tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Now, God may not have showed you when you're going to put off your tabernacle. What is Peter talking about? He's talking about death here, when he's going to put off his body and be separated. God has not showed you when, even though Peter may have had a more better idea that it was soon. But let me tell you that, that death, so far, has a pretty good success rate in this world, okay? In fact, Pretty much everyone has died. Lazarus had to do it twice. So, we only have a short amount of time. Death is coming. And Peter is saying all of that to say, this is why you should be motivated and diligent because we don't have much time. We're all going to die. The short time we have should be about Christ and what he has done. 
And then verse 15, moreover I, will, moreover, I will endeavor. Same idea of diligence here. I'm giving diligence to this, Peter is saying. I'm giving diligence that after my decease, after I've left, to have these things always in remembrance. You know, that's Pastor Jeff, one of his beating desires in his heart. Is that he, he'll say this from the pulpit. When I leave the pulpit, and for a short time he has, unexpectedly, But what does he say? I want you to know doctrine, correct doctrine, because doctrine matters. So that when I leave, you will know, you will have been put in remembrance what the truths of the scriptures are. And what's his concern there? Well, that some false teacher doesn't get up here and start denying the Lord Jesus Christ, which has saved us. And so here's the bottom line. You know, it's not my job alone to know what the Bible says. It's actually all of our jobs as believers to know the scriptures, to be in the scriptures, to know what they say. And Peter is like, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure it gets through my, you know, your thick skull in some sense. No, he says it much more lovingly. My thick skull, not yours. So he's being diligent to have these things. He's, and he uses a slightly different word for remembrance. It's, it has the idea of lasting remembrance. In other words, what I want the next generation to know. I want to pass this along, this faith, so others will know. So, give diligence. Diligence to what? Do you want an abundant life? Be sure of where you stand before God, and you can be sure. That's the beautiful thing. Do you want an established life? Be reminding yourself and others, be talking about what Christ has done that grounds you, establishes you in the word, in what he has done. May God give us his grace to be growing in grace, not in and of ourselves, but because of everything that he has done for us.